0: Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I am uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, like people have said already this morning, uh, welcome, especially if you're a visitor, especially if this is uh, your first time or one of your first times, we're really glad that you are here, that you chose to join us uh, this morning as as we talk about, uh, like Peter said, the the resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then our uh, resurrection as well, if we have put in our, our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Like I said, I'm one of the pastors here. There's uh, another one, Chris, who's not here today. He's on vacation. And uh, one of my duties, one of my honors, although uh, not really a great joy, is uh, as a pastor, I do funerals. And so this past week, uh, I officiated a funeral on Monday, and they're just often not too much fun. Lots of tears, lots of really broken people, deep sadness, mourning, and grief. And even as the the person officiating, I I just knew something was wrong. I knew that this is just not the way that it's supposed to be. I saw something broken. Even if, and many of you have maybe experienced this or at least see this, even if someone dies heroically, maybe fighting for their country, or a a firefighter saving someone, or or someone who has lived a great full life and dies, you know, at 95 years old with with a great life, even when that happens, it still seems wrong. Maybe not as wrong as, you know, a newborn dying or something like that, but uh, I think that there's something within us that just knows that, that death is a problem. Death is wrong. Death is not the way that it is supposed to be. Last week, uh, we talked about the problem of evil, the problem of pain and suffering, being in this world, and how it wasn't part of God's plan. In fact, it's, it's the exact opposite of God's plan, what he wanted for us, what he wanted for his creation. His desire was life and perfect life with him and in paradise. That's the way that it was supposed to be. Not pain and suffering, not death, but humanity. We wanted more. We wanted more than just God. We wanted more than, uh, you know, perfect life without death in paradise. And our first parents joined with Satan and led a rebellion against God. And the result of that rebellion was that death entered this world. Life from then on has now been marred by this inevitable destruction that death brings. So when we see, experience, feel the pains of death, whether it be a friend, a loved one, a family member, or even an acquaintance, we know in the depths of our soul that this is wrong. This is not the way it was supposed to be. There's pain, there's sadness, there's sorrow, and that's normal. That's, it makes sense for us It breaks our hearts, we're full of sadness, we grieve, we lament, and we mourn. The Bible not only talks about death as being something bad, it even personifies it and even calls death our enemy. But the story does not stop there. God does not just leave us in our rebellion, does not just leave us with this great enemy that's going to take us all out, but instead our God, the God of the Bible, is a forgiving God. He's a saving God, he's a rescuing God, And he's a God that, as a great king to us, goes out and defeats our enemies in our place on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the the second person of the Trinity, came into this world, became a man fully, and lived the perfect life that we could never live in order to die a death in our place on the cross where ultimately death was defeated. As a song we're going to sing later on in the service goes, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave but even after jesus's death on the cross his resurrection from the grave death still lingers right you might be saying well that's great that jesus rose from the grave but i still have family members and friends dying i still i still see disease and decay and aging destroy bodies so what's going on so despite jesus's defeat of death it still affects us and covers all of humanity and that's where we are in history We're after the cross, after the resurrection, after Jesus has uh, dealt this first blow, this first deadly blow to death, but it is still around. We're still plagued by its effects. Our bodies are still falling apart. Disease, sickness, and death surround us. I'm only 30 years old. I was joking with a friend just yesterday about uh, he was a great athlete back in high school, and we are kind of just joking about our glory days back in our teens and 20s when we had these, you know, strong bodies, and we weren't sore and didn't have pain. And, and we're only 30, and we're already feeling the effects of, of just being in this fallen world, of our bodies falling apart, having pain and, and soreness and lack of sleep, and, and, and just realizing that we're going from a state of, of, of life moving towards, towards death. So this, this truth that death is still around us despite Jesus defeating death, leads us to lots of questions, especially lots of questions for Christians. So what happens when Christians die? Is there a resurrection? What will this resurrection look like? When will it happen? And many, many more questions. And these questions are actually are the same questions that a church in uh, ancient Greece, called, uh, in a city called Thessalonica, same questions that this church had some 2,000 years ago. So the apostle Paul was sent by Jesus. He was essentially a a global missionary, sent to all these different cities, and one of them was Thessalonica, and and Paul went there, he preached the gospel, people responded, they repented, they turned to Jesus, uh, and, and put their faith in him, and a church was born. Yet there was lots of people there who actually opposed Paul and opposed his gospel, and so Paul was actually not able to stay there, and he was actually forced to leave. So there's this young church, this young church plant with lots of People who are newer in their faith and their church plan or their pastor has, has left them. And so they have lots of these questions. So this young church asks Paul, their pastor who has left them through letter, asks them many questions specifically about uh, death and resurrection and how that affects Christians. And so Paul writes them a letter back answering some of these questions. And that is uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament of the Bible. So Paul, in his letter, he's writing back to this church, and he's responding to their questions about death and their questions about uh, resurrection and and what happens after people died, and and they they lack knowledge about what happens after death because Paul had to leave. So Paul responds in 1 Thessalonians. We're just going to look at a small part of that letter back to them today, but he responds... In, in two ways. First, he reminds them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He reminds them of Jesus' resurrection. So they first ask, they're asking him, So what happens to us when we die? What happens to us? And, and Paul's first response is look at Christ. Look at Christ's resurrection first. And then he goes from there and speaks to our, to Christians, our future resurrection, which also comes in Christ. This morning, if it's your first time here at Hiawatha, or first time in a few months, we're actually in a new sermon series that we're calling Big Questions. And we've asked the church uh, to give us big questions that they have, questions that they're wrestling with, questions that they don't have answers to, whether it's stuff from the Bible, whether it's questions about church, about faith, about life in general. And we've been preaching through those throughout this summer. And uh, that'll go uh, through the end of the summer as well. We have about four months of, of preaching on these big questions And one of those questions, uh, very similar to what uh, the church in Thessalonica are asking, questions surrounding the resurrections, what happens to believers when they die, when does bodily resurrection happen, and questions like that. So we're actually going to kind of zoom back a little bit and uh, just answer the the more general question, which will hopefully hit all these individual ones, and it'll probably arise uh, many more questions. But... uh, this sermon is going to be entitled, What is the Resurrection? And kind of a foreshadowing. We see how Christ in his resurrected state is actually pulling saints, pulling believers out of their tombs in his resurrected body. And so just a quick disclaimer, kind of like we've been saying in many of these sermons already, uh, when you have asked, you've asked us really fantastic questions, but often they're very large and we don't have time to completely answer all these And with the resurrection as well, the Bible does say a lot about what happens, but the Bible also leaves a lot silent. And some of it is is maybe metaphorical language as well. And so we're going to jump into this. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning, but you might leave this morning with even more questions, or you might just not have all your questions perfectly answered. The Bible gives us some truth, but maybe not exactly how everything will look. So just, just beware for that. And because we're going to use this word a lot, I'm just going to define resurrection right at the beginning. So don't leave, even though I'm answering the question right away. But so we're going to say this word resurrection again and again. So what does resurrection mean? It is the biblical teaching that someone died and then returned to physical life forever. So bodily, physical life forever. So this is kind of unlike Lazarus or some other people that Jesus raised from the dead who actually then died later on in the life. But, but, but resurrection is patterned after Jesus' resurrection. So someone coming back to life, bodily form, to never die again. So as we're saying resurrection, keep that in your mind or be thinking, thinking about Jesus' resurrection as well. All right, so we're going to start answering this big question and then many other questions that go along with it by uh, starting in 1 Thessalonians 4. So this is towards the end of Paul's letter, writing back to this church. I'm going to read verses uh, thirteen through eighteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, so speaking to the church, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you don't just leave us. You didn't just leave this church in Thessalonica to wonder what happens after we die, wonder how your resurrection affects your followers, but that you you answer these questions. You give us enough knowledge that we need to have so that we can be encouraged, so that we are not hopeless. So we thank you for this word, and we pray, uh, Spirit, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would encourage us in the truth of the resurrection. And for those of us Here, that uh, have not put our trust in you today, that they would see this invitation, this offer of eternal life, this offer of our enemy of death being defeated and having eternal life in paradise with you. Speak to us this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. Before we jump into uh, our sermon, just two quick resources. Again, I'm not going to have time to unpack everything, but a couple of good resources if. Uh, this brings up more questions for you, or you really like to study these topics more, especially on resurrection and uh, uh, heaven, the new the new heaven and the new earth, things like that. First one is this book uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's like 500 pages long. Uh, don't be too intimidated because it's it's broken up to like 30 or 40 chapters, answering lots of these these questions. Really uh, biblically based. Lots of uh, people have recommended it. I've read most of it, and it's really good. So if if uh, you are interested in learning more about this, and uh, that that's a great resource. And then, um, about five years ago, we preached through the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians 15 is a chapter, like 50 or 50 uh, verses, just unpacking the resurrection and what that means for Christians. And so, there's about three or four sermons that we preached on about five years ago. So, if uh, you have questions, I would I would encourage you to check out those two resources. They'll be super helpful for you. All right, to our text, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. So Paul's writing back to this church plant, writing back to his church, saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So this phrase, those who are asleep, essentially just a euphemism for talking about people who have died. And probably, we don't know for sure, but it's probably being used, this, this, euf- this euphemism, being asleep, because just like when someone's asleep, they awake and they're in the same body. Uh, that's, that's what happens with our resurrection, as, as opposed to someone waking up and then going into a new body or, or something like that. We're going to talk a little bit more about this idea about falling asleep and what happens after someone's death, but uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope, or those who have no hope. So Paul starts by answering their question, telling them that he doesn't want them to be uninformed, that there actually is an answer out there. It's not the Christian life. You have to go blindly out there and have no idea what happens after you die. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. It's bad if you are uninformed on this topic about those who have died, especially Christians. And he even says in here, too, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So he doesn't say grieving's bad. Grieving actually can, can often be a really good thing, a good process too. Go through So being sorrowful, grieving is not something that's bad and is actually something that probably should happen. But rather, he, he argues that Christians grieve differently than the world. Christians grieve differently than those who don't have hope because Christians do have a hope. We have a hope that this world is not the end. We have a hope that this life is not the end, that this enemy that just slayed and, and took from us, one of our friends or family members or loved ones, that that enemy will be destroyed and we will be reunited with them. And ultimately, we'll be reunited with our Creator, with our God, whom we have been separated from by our sin and, and, and by death. So this hope described by Paul is prophesied in the Old Testament that one day God would come and rescue his people and he would crush this great enemy that they have of death. Isaiah 25, 8 says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then at the end of the Bible, the last few chapters, we see that King Jesus comes and delivers the final blow, the ultimate blow, to our enemy of death. Revelation 20:14 says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So Paul, he doesn't want this church to be uninformed about death. And he doesn't want them to to live hopelessly, but rather to live victoriously, live as those who have hope. Back to verse uh, 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul starts by answering their question by going to Jesus' resurrection. He bases his answer in what happens to Christians when they die, he bases that answer within the gospel. That is the foundation of our resurrection, Jesus's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, and in another one of Paul's uh, letters to a different church, he says that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain, and that we, Christians, should be pitied more than anyone else on the face of the earth. So Jesus's resurrection is the foundation of our faith, and if that's not true, our faith is in vain. We should be mocked, we should be pitied but it is true so let it, so let's unpack Jesus's resurrection as uh, what what Paul does first the resurrection that our resurrection will then proceed out of. first thing about Jesus' resurrection is that he was truly dead. he wasn't just lying in a tomb he wasn't just kind of knocked unconscious. he wasn't just sleeping. he didn't just like disappear and then come back three days later. but he actually was dead. he actually tasted death on our behalf and he's now alive. Revelation one eighteen. Jesus says, I died and behold, I'm alive forever. And I have the keys to death and Hades. So Hades is the place of the dead. So, so think about a prison. Think about people who are trapped, imprisoned in this prison of death. And Jesus says, he has the keys. He has the keys to open up this prison so that people are no longer captive. Who are, they're no longer prisoners to death through Jesus' resurrection, through Jesus' defeat of death. What was the goal? What was the, the, the mission? The, what did Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish? Many things. Two of those, though, it reversed the curse. It reversed the curse of death that came into the world when our parents rebelled, and it was actually the, the beginning of the defeat of sin and the defeat of death. In John 3, Jesus says, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the goal: is that people would not perish anymore, that death would no longer have its stranglehold around humanity for those who believe in him, but have instead of death, instead of perishing, have eternal life, unending life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But that, in order that the world might be saved through him. And then later on in John. Jesus is speaking with a woman and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, two things Jesus is saying here that in putting our trust and faith in him, we will no longer die spiritually, we will come alive right then and there. The old person will die spiritually and we raised with Christ spiritually, right then and right there. And he's also talking about uh, future, that we will also eternally live, and not just spiritually, but eternally we will live in a physical form in our bodies. In another one of Paul's letters, the one we've been referencing, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he uses this picture of first fruits to describe Christ's resurrection in relation to our own resurrection. So think, think strawberries. So uh, my wife and I are uh, amateur gardeners. Uh, we really enjoy planting, and we really enjoy the harvest. It's all that like middle stuff—the the weeding and the watering. But we—we uh, we have uh, strawberries are now taking over one of our gardens, and it's fantastic. But uh, as you know with strawberries, or think of any other fruit, uh, there's there's a first fruit, the first fruit that that turns from you know kind of green into red or, or whatever color the fruit is. And what that, first, what that first fruit does is it tells us two things. First, it tells us that more is coming. If it's the first one and there's plants all over the place, we know that more is coming. And secondly, it tells us what is coming. Okay, if we see our first fruit, pretend there's just one strawberry there, if we see the first strawberry of the season, we know that these plants are not going to produce apples. They're not going to produce thorns. They're going to produce more of that first fruit. So when Paul is describing Christ's resurrection as our first fruit, he does does so in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus' resurrection, just like this, is our first fruit. It's the first fruit of our resurrection. It's, It's the prototype of our resurrection. It's the model of what our resurrection will look like. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's look at Jesus' resurrection. So if Paul's saying what happened with Jesus is going to happen with his followers, well, let's look at what happened with Jesus with his resurrection. First, Jesus was resurrected into a perfect body. So it still was a body. still was similar to who he was before his death, but it was now a perfected body, a glorious body. Philippians 3, 20-21 says, Speaking to the church again, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So Christ's body now is a glorious body. It's a physical body, but it's been resurrected. It's, it's glorious now. It's gone from a, a lowly, uh, perishable body to now an imperishable, glorious body and ours is going to follow in those footsteps who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So we're not when Christians die we're not just going to be some spirit floating in the clouds as Peter kind of said playing a harp with maybe a little halo kind of wearing a diaper or some type of robe or something which actually sounds a lot more like hell than heaven for for, for most of us but that's not what it's going to be and I don't know how we how we got that idea in our culture but rather, resurrection for Christians is a bodily resurrection, just like Christ's was. So let's look at Christ's uh, his resurrection a little more, his body. So there's some continuity between the, the Christ before his death and the Christ after his resurrection. In, uh, in the gospel, when we see Jesus after his resurrection, he still has some of the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet like he did beforehand. So there's some continuity. The, the, the body is similar Yet, there's also lots of discontinuity too. It's now perfected. It's now glorious. It's not being affected by disease or decay or death. In a a number of the gospel accounts, after Jesus' resurrection, the people don't recognize Jesus at first until either he speaks to them or reveals to them that that is him. So we don't really know exactly what our our bodies will look like except that they will mirror, in in many ways, Jesus' resurrected body. So kind of the big point for us here is just to avoid these two extremes. The one extreme, that Christians will, will uh, not have bodies, that they'll just be these, these floating spirits or something like that in, in a state forever in heaven. Or the other extreme is that Christians will have these exact same bodies, these exact same broken, uh, falling apart, diseased bodies that are going to die. So as long as we don't have one of those two extremes, we're kind of in the healthy medium where uh, the Bible doesn't give us lots and lots of details of exactly what our glorified, perfected body will, will look like. And then it's also very important for us to remember wh- where we are in history. We're not there yet. We're not in the resurrected state yet. Christ has not returned. We do not have our resur- resurrected bodies yet. So Sometimes people break the, the Bible kind of into to four chunks or four headings, kind of help us see, like, when we're reading a passage of Scripture, where does it fall in the Bible? And and oftentimes they use these four, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So creation, God creates the universe and the world and everything in it, and it's perfect, it's good. Genesis 3, the fall happens. Humanity rebels against God, and everything goes haywire. It's marred, it's tainted, it's broken. And then from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of the, the gospel accounts, we're in that state, and then redemption happens. Christ dies on the cross for our sins. He defeats Satan and death and sin on the cross, yet we're not at the end yet. We're not at restoration. Jesus hasn't come back a second time, which we're going to talk about in a second. The second coming, he hasn't come back to fully defeat our enemies and usher into his kingdom right now. So it's helpful for us to know we live in this redemption period. Christ has, has delivered the first blow, the first deadly blow to our enemies, yet people still die. And we're not quite to re- Restoration yet, so it's helpful for us to know and to remember where we are right now. We're in redemption area, if you want to call it that. Not yet restoration. So we've seen one strawberry. We've seen the first fruit there. Where we're at right now, and uh, but yet we're still waiting for the rest of the strawberries. They're still coming. Okay, back to 1 Thessalonians uh, verse fifteen. For this we declare to you by the word, by word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So basically he's just saying here, so some people are going to die and be dead when Christ returns, and some people are, are, are still going to be alive when Jesus returns. Verse 16, So the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is often called Jesus' second coming. So he came the first time as a child. He lived. He had a ministry as an adult. He did miracles and teachings. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He, he stuck around for a few weeks teaching people, letting them know what had just been accomplished on the cross, letting people know and see and touch and feel him so they knew that he was who he said he was, that he was truly God and that he had resurrected. And then he goes back to be with the Father in heaven, and that's where he is at right now, ruling in heaven on his throne. And so Jesus is going to come aback but that, that restoration part, that final part, often called the second coming. In First uh, Thessalonians here, they use the phrase the, the coming of the Lord. So essentially, it's Jesus' final return to earth where he'll judge the world and then set up his new kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth, where the final and full defeat of Satan, sin, and death will be Verse 16 says, Jesus will descend from heaven. And so Jesus is up there ruling right now beside God the Father. And with the archangel, he's going to call out. Archangel is just the, the, the head angel, the, the most powerful angel. Uh, is going to call out and there's going to be these loud trumpets roaring when Jesus returns in his second coming. It's kind of cool about the trumpets too. I, I didn't know this, but I uh, saw this when I was, when I was studying All throughout the Old Testament, when trumpets are sounding often, it it means certain things. It's not just a noise, a, hey, look over here. But trumpets sounding often in the Old Testament announces God's presence. Also in Jewish tradition, the trumpet was associated with battle, with the the day of the Lord and with the resurrection. And so when Jesus comes back, these loud trumpets are going to roar, signifying to everyone that the Lord's presence is now coming to earth that he's going to fight a battle on our behalf, that the day of the Lord is here, and that the resurrection is coming. When he returns, we read, it says, the dead in Christ, or those Christians who have already died, will rise first. So their bodies first will be resurrected out of their graves, out of the ground, joined together with their spirits to never die again. How is that going to work? We don't quite know. We just know what's going to happen. We don't know what happens to bodies that are decomposed or that are uh, all the other all all the details. We don't know what, what's going to happen, but we do know that the dead in Christ will rise when Christ returns. So Let's just pause for a second. Let's, let's back up just a little bit and, and answer a few questions here. So, so what happens to Christians when they die? This is one of the specific questions we got from you. What happens to Christians when they die? Are they just in the ground sleeping until Christ comes back? and raises them out of the grave? Maybe. Uh, it is maybe. The theologians give this term, or they call this idea soul sleep. And maybe that's what's happening. We see in First Thessalonians 4, there actually is some, some sleep language, so maybe that's what it is. But um, I, I actually think it's less likely, and I'm going to share some reasons why, but this is kind of one of those open-handed issues that Christians disagree on, and that's okay. But uh, I, I think it's actually not soul sleep. I don't think our bodies after we die, just, just sleep and all of a sudden wake up the second that Jesus comes back for a few reasons, and we're going to look at some of them. I, I believe, rather, that our spirits will be with Christ in heaven when we die. Often this is called the intermediate state, post-death but before the resurrection. We just saw in verse 14 that it said that God will bring him, God will bring Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So it seems like Christians who have died, are their spirits are with God, and he's going to bring them with him. A couple, couple times we see in the New Testament ideas of, of uh, Christians who have died being with Jesus after their death. Uh, one we see in Luke 23. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. One of the criminals who is hanging rallied at him, ra- rallied at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the, the second thief, the second criminal, rebuked the first criminal, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him and he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, another description. Of, of the Garden of Eden or of heaven, when humanity is back in, in perfect relationship with, with our God. Also in Second Corinthians, Paul, is writing to another church, and he shares, he says, So we are always of good, good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, so while we are alive, we're away from the Lord. We're away from Jesus, physical Jesus. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So it seems like Paul's arguing here, if we're not in our bodies, if we're not alive, our spirits will be with the Lord, with Jesus in heaven. And again in Philippians 1, making a similar assumption or similar argument, it seems like here. Uh, For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, so to be alive, that means fruitful labor to me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart so to depart this flesh, depart this body, and to be with Christ, which is far better. A couple other examples I could give uh, that we're not going to get into. There's a parable about Lazarus that also seems that uh, after people die, they're, they're, their spirits, their souls go to be uh, with Jesus if they're believers. The transfiguration, uh, we see uh, some Old Testament prophets come back and, and speak with Jesus. Seems like it's really them, like their spirits are, are alive. Also in the book of Re- Revelation, it talks about the souls of believers speaking as well. And so, um, we're, you know, we're not entirely sure. The Bible is not crystal clear on this. But I think for, you know, these number of verses we looked at, that when Christians die, their souls go to be with Jesus until uh, his return. And then they're reunited with their physical bodies. So let's let's keep going in 1 Thessalonians as, as he unpacks this even more. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, so people who are alive and crit. When Christ returns, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This word for meet often means uh, when when like a dignitary would come into a city or a king would come into a city, and uh, people would go out to meet him, welcome him, and then bring him back into the city. So that's probably what's going on here is that uh, so Christians who are still alive when Jesus comes back, we're going to go out to meet Jesus in the clouds, with him, and then as as he's coming back uh, into earth, just like if you'd go out and welcome a visiting king outside of your city walls, you'd come back with him into your city. So so when does bodily resurrection happen? Or or when sorry, or where will we live with the Lord for eternity, as verse 17 put it? What will this look like? So our our resurrection, Christians' bodily resurrection is, is a return to Eden back to the beginning, back to the way God created uh, the world, back to the way that it was supposed to be. Without disease, without decay, without death. The first two chapters of the Bible begin with the creation of the world and everything that is in it and that it was good. And it describes God's intention for the world, his intention for human life and our relationship with him. And then the last two chapters of the Bible will end with the resurrection of the world full of resurrection of not only human life, but also a resurrection of this world as well. A new heaven and a new earth where humanity will live in our resurrected bodies with our King, with our resurrected Christ forever. John Piper writes, what happens to our bodies and what happens to creation goes together. And what happens to our bodies is not annihilationism. It's not that we just cease to exist, but rather redemption. Our bodies will be redeemed restored, made new, not thrown away, and so it is with the heavens and earth. So the Bible ends with a prophecy describing the end, describing, uh, it's a vision of how the end will take place, what what will happen at and, and after Christ's second coming. So Jesus comes back as our great king and finally and fully defeats Satan in death. Death is destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire. The world is judged. Everyone who has ever lived goes before Christ, and they're judged not on whether or not they're a good person or not, but judged on whether or not they put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then God recreates. He makes a new heaven and earth, and they come down from heaven, and there's this new recreated world, a new recreated city, where God now lives among his people, where death is no more, and where everything is returned to the way that it was supposed to be. A return to an Eden-like existence. The new heavens and the new earth described in, in, in Revelation, in, or that will be the location of our, our spirits being united with our bodies for eternity. And as we just read, first for the dead, and then for those who are still alive. Uh, uh, this word for new, so when we see new heavens and new earth, Sometimes, I mean, we, we, we could think it means a, a total brand new thing, but this, this word new often means, or, or rather means than a, a brand new thing, rather a recreation, a resurrection of something, something being made new, rather than this one just totally being annihilated and destroyed and, and a brand new one brand new one coming. But we're not there yet. We're not at the new heavens and the new earth yet. Second Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in in which righteousness dwells. We wait for our new heaven and our new earth. We wait for our resurrection. So Paul just went from this church being hopeless, this church being uninformed, this church being terrified about death and what that means, and now they're uninformed. And he ends this passage with saying, verse 18, therefore encourage each other with these words. I don't want you to be hopeless. I don't want you to be uninformed. And I want you to be encouraged by them. These words will bring about joy, will bring about life, will bring about encouragement. So I want the church for us. Speaking to us, or whether you're a Christian here and this is not your home church, use the resurrection as a hope for joy. When we get blinded by the shiny idols in front of us, use the resurrection when we're discouraged about the difficulty of life, about broken relationships, about losing jobs, about just this world being broken, look to the resurrection, be encouraged by the hope of the resurrection. And when we feel the sting and the hopelessness of sickness and disease and pain and death, when it affects our lives and those we love, be encouraged by these words. So in conclusion, how how do we apply these gospel truths? To our lives about the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, and then our resurrection coming out of that. First thing, live as though you've been resurrected. It starts spiritually if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. The old person has died, and you're made a new person spiritually. I'd, I'd encourage you to read Romans 5, really unpacks this really well. It talks about us being uh, dead to our old selves and now being alive in Christ. A great foretaste of what's going to happen fully when Christ comes and fully resurrects our body. So I'd encourage you to to read that. But live as though you've been resurrected. Live as though you're no longer a slave and imprisoned in the pit, in in the prison, in the jail of death and sin. Secondly, do not grieve as those who have no hope. We will grieve, we will be touched by death. It will affect us, ourselves, our loved ones. But don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope, and if the, the people you love in your life don't have that hope yet, let this be a catalyst for you to share your faith, to share the gospel, that there actually is hope, that death doesn't have to be the end, death doesn't have to be something that we're terrified of, that, that, that brings hopelessness. Or rather, in Christ, Christians now live not as those who don't have hope, but we live as those who do have hope. We grieve differently than the world. It doesn't mean we cry, it doesn't mean we don't cry, doesn't mean we're not sad. It, just does, it means we're not devastated. We don't lose complete hope. But rather, we remember the sting of death, remember the problem that our rebellion caused in this world. And we long for Christ to come back. We long for his resurrection. We long for uh, the second coming and our resurrection in this new heavens and new earth. And then finally, especially if you're a Christian, or, yeah, especially if you're a Christian, live with an eternal mindset. This world is not the end. If you're not a Christian today, if you're just kind of wondering who Jesus is or what the Bible's about or what Christ came to do, if he's just a guru with some great uh, teachings, things to live by, he tells us that he's he's God. He tells us that he came. His mission was to to defeat our enemies of of Satan, sin, and death. And he tells us that there will be an eternity, that there will be a judgment uh, when he comes back for all those who have ever lived. But that Uh, We will be judged based, not on if we're a good person or a bad person, not on if we're better than our neighbors or have done more good deeds than, than someone else, but rather we will be judged on whether or not we'll put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. So know that that eternity is coming. There will be a judgment, but that he offers forgiveness. He offers relationship with him. He offers resurrected life, eternal life in paradise with him. And if you are a Christian today, live like that's true. Don't live like today is all about getting the most pleasure, or that this life is the end. So i got to have the most toys, the greatest experiences, the greatest travels, the, the most amount of comfort, the least amount of pain. But realize that this life is just a blink. It's just a vapor compared to eternity. So Christians should live with an eternal mindset. This world is not the end. And live a life that's preparing for eternity, preparing yourself, for eternity, as well as those loved ones, the people that God's put around you. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, in our death, in these broken bodies, in an eternity, eternity separated from you, but that you rather, through your Son, through your death and resurrection on the cross, you give us an invitation back to an Eden like state back to relationship with you, back to eternal life, back to living with our God, as we see all over in the book of Revelation. God, help us as a church to live out the resurrection, live it out spiritually now in our lives, like like the old us is dead, the old slave to sin is dead. Help us to live that we are now free in Christ, that we're alive in Christ, and help us to look forward to the resurrection, to the second coming especially in days of of suffering and pain and when we experience and taste death, when our bodies break down, when we're sad, when we're in pain. Help us to long for your return, to grieve not as the world does and to not be hopeless like others who who don't know, but that your church uh, would be full of hope, that we would grieve differently and that we would live with our minds set on eternity. pray this in your saving name, Jesus. Amen.